0: Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. Hi guys welcome back to episode four part two in which we finish reading braddon's 1894 short story herself when we left off our narrator had visited her friend loda's home in Tajia and found her in a horrible state of health and she's scared for her life and wondering what the influences of the house are that are causing this health crisis in her friend so today we pick up with chapter three Sometimes, they fade and die. I tested the strength of my own influence the next day, and I was inclined to be less severe in my judgment of the meek spinster after a long morning in the woods with Loda and Captain Halbrook, In which all my arguments and entreaties, backed most fervently by an adoring lover, had proved useless.
1: I am assured that no place could suit my health better, Lotus said decisively, and I mean to stay here till my doctor orders me to Varese or home to England. Do you suppose I spent a year's income on the villa with the idea of running away from it? I am tired to death of being teased about the place. First it is Auntie, and then it is Captain Holbrook, and now it is young Helen. Villa, gardens, and woods are utterly lovely, and I mean to stay.
0: "'But if you are not happy here?'
1: "'Who says I am not happy?'
0: "'Your face says it, Loda.'
1: "'I'm just as happy here as I should be anywhere else,' she answered doggedly. "'And I mean to stay.'
0: She set her teeth as she finished the sentence, and her face had a look of angry resolve that I had never seen in it before. It seemed as if she were fighting against something, defying something. She rose abruptly from the bank upon which she had been sitting, in a sheltered hollow, near the rocky cleft where a ruined oil mill hung moldering on the brink of a waterfall, and she began to walk up and down very fast, muttering to herself with frowning brows.
1: I shall stay, I shall stay.
0: I heard her repeating as she passed me. After that miserable morning, miserable in a climate and a scene of loveliness where bare existence should have been bliss, I had many serious conversations with Captain Hallbrook, who was at the villa every day, the most wonderful and devoted of lovers. From him I learned all that was known of the house in which I was living. He had taken infinite pains to discover any reason, in the house or the neighborhood, for the lamentable change in Loda, but with the slightest results. No legend of the supernatural was associated with the Orange Grove, but on being questioned, searchingly, an old Italian physician who had spent his life at Tagia and who had known Ruffini confessed that there was a something, a mysterious something, about the villa which seemed to have affected everybody who lived in it, as owner or master, within the memory of the oldest inhabitant.
1: People are not happy there, as they are not happy. And sometimes they fade and die.
0: Invalids who come to the south to die?
1: Not always. The signorina's grandfather was an elderly man, but he appeared robust jealous when he came. However, at that age, a sudden break-up is by no means wonderful. There were previous instances of decay and death far more appalling and in some ways mysterious. I am sorry the young lady has spent so much money on the villa.
0: What does money matter if she would only go elsewhere? She would not. That was the difficulty. No argument of her lover's could move her. She would go in April, she told him, at the season for departure. But not even his persuasion, his urgent prayers, would induce her to leave one week, or one day, sooner than the doctor ordered.
1: I should hate myself if I were weak enough to run away from this place, she said.
0: And it seemed to me that those words were the clue to her conduct, and that she was making a martyr of herself rather than succumb to something of horror which was haunting and killing her. Her marriage had been fixed for the following June, and George Holbrook was strong in the rights of a future husband. But submissive as she was in all other respects, upon this point she was stubborn, and her lover's fervent pleading moved her no more than the piteous entreaties of her spinster aunt. I began to understand that the case was hopeless, so far as Loda's well-being depended upon her speedy removal from the orange grove. We could only wait as hopefully as we could for April, and the time she had fixed for departure. I took the earliest opportunity of confiding my fears to the English physician, but clever and amiable as he was, he laughed all ideas of occult influence to scorn.
2: From the moment the sanitary engineer, a really scientific man, certified this house as a healthy house. The last word was said as to its suitableness for Miss Hammond. The situation is perfect, the climate's all that one could desire. It would be folly to move her till the spring is advanced enough for Varice or England.
0: What could I say against this verdict of local experience? Loda was not one of those interesting and profitable cases which a doctor likes to keep under his own eye. As a patient, her doctor only saw her once in a way, but he dropped in at the villa often as a friend and he had been useful in bringing nice people about her. I pressed the question so far as to ask him about the rooms at the back of the house, the old monkish rooms which had served as an infirmary in the 17th and 18th centuries. Surely those rooms must be cold and
2: damp. Damp, no. Cold, yes. All north rooms are cold on the Riviera. And the change from south to north is perilous. But as no one uses the old monkish rooms, their aspect can make little difference.
0: Does not Miss Hammond use those rooms sometimes?
2: Never, I believe. Indeed, I understood Miss Elderson to say that the corridor leading to the old part of the house is kept locked, and that she has the key. I take it the good lady thinks that if the rooms are haunted, it is her business to keep the ghosts in safe custody, as she does the groceries.
0: Has nobody ever used these rooms since the new villa was built? I asked.
2: Mr. Hammond used them, and was rather attached to that part of the house. His library is still there, I believe, in what was once a refectory.
0: I should love to see it.
2: You have only to ask Miss Elderson.
0: I did ask Miss Elderson, without an hour's delay, the first time I found myself alone with her. She blushed, hesitated, assured me that the rooms contained nothing worth looking at, and fully confessed that the key was not come at "'I've
1: not lost it,' she said. "'It is only mislaid. It is sure to turn up when I am looking for something else. I put it in a safe place.'"
0: Miss Elderson's Places of Safety had been one of our stock jokes ever since I had known Loda and her aunt, so I was inclined to despair of ever seeing those mysterious rooms in which the monks had lived. Yet, after meditating upon the subject in a long ramble on the hill above the villa, I was inclined to think that Loda might know more about that key than the good, simple soul who had mislaid it. There were hours in every day during which my friend disappeared from the family circle, hours in which she was supposed to be resting inside the mosquito curtains in her own room. I had knocked at her door once or twice during this period of supposed rest, and there had been no answer. I had tried the door softly, and had found it locked, and had gone away believing my friend fast asleep. But now I began to wonder whether Loda might not possess the key of those uninhabited rooms, and for some strange capricious motive spend some of her lonely hours within those walls. I made an investigation at the back of the villa the following day, before the early coffee and the rolls, which we three spinsters generally took in the veranda on warm sunny mornings, and most of our mornings were warm. I found the massive Venetian shutters firmly secured inside, and affording not a glimpse of the rooms within. The windows looked straight upon the precipitous hill, and these northward-facing rooms must needs be dark and chilly at the best of times. My curiosity was completely baffled. Even if I had been disposed to do a little housebreaking, there was no possibility of opening those two solid-looking shutters. I tugged at the fastening savagely, but made no more impression than if I had been a fly. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll move on to chapter 4. <laughs> sunshine outside, but ice at the core. For the next four days, I watched Loda's movements. After our morning saunter, she was far too weak now to go further than the terraced pass near the villa, and our sauntering was of the slowest. My poor friend would retire to her room for what she called her afternoon rest, while the carriage, rarely used by herself, conveyed her aunt and me for a drive, which, our low spirits, made ineffably dreary. Vainly was that panorama of loveliness spread before my eyes. I could enjoy nothing, for between me and that romantic scene, there was the image of my perishing friend, dying by inches and obstinately determined to die. I questioned Loda's maid about those long afternoons which her mistress spent in her darkened room, and the young woman's answers confirmed my suspicions. Miss Hammond did not like to be disturbed. She was a very heavy sleeper.
1: She likes me to go to her at four o'clock every afternoon to do her hair and put on her tea ground. Generally fast asleep when I go to her.
0: And her door is locked?
1: Nah, doors very seldom looked at four. Went an hour earlier once with a telegram, and then the door was locked. And Miss Hammond was so fast asleep she couldn't hear me knocking. Had to wait till the usual time.
0: On the fourth day after my inspection of the shutters, I started for the daily drive at the accustomed hour but when we had gone a little way down the hill, I pretended to remember an important letter that had to be written, and asked Miss Elderson to stop the carriage, and let me go back to the villa, excusing my desertion for this afternoon. The poor lady, who was as low-spirited as myself, declared she would miss me sadly, and the carriage crept on while I climbed the hill by those straight, steep paths which shortened the journey to five minutes' walk. The silence of the villa as I went softly in at the open hall door suggested a general siesta. There was an awning in front of the door, and the hall was wrapped in a shadow, the corridor beyond darker still, and at the end of this corridor I saw a flitting figure in pale gray, the pale Indian cashmere of Loda's neat morning frock. I heard a key turn, then the creaking of a heavy door, and the darkness had swallowed that pale gray figure. I waited a few moments, and then stole softly along the passage. The door was half open, and I peered into the room beyond. It was empty, but an open door facing the fireplace showed me another room, a room lined with bookshelves, and in this room I could hear footsteps pacing slowly to and fro very slowly, with the feeble tread I knew too well. Presently she turned, put her hand to her brow as if remembering something, and hurried to the door where I was standing. "'It is I, Loda,' I called out as she approached me, lest she should be startled by my unexpected presence. I had been mean enough to steal a march upon her, but I was not mean enough to conceal myself. "'You here?' I told her how I had suspected her visits to these deserted rooms, and how I had dreaded the melancholy effect which their dreariness must needs exercise upon her mind and health.
1: Do you call them dreary? she asked with a curious laugh. I call them charming. They're the only rooms in the house that interest me, and it's just the same with my grandfather. He spent his declining days in these queer old rooms, surrounded by these queer old things. She looked
0: round her with furtive wandering glances at the heavy old bookshelves, the black-and-white cabinets, the dismal old Italian tapestry, and at a Venetian glass which occupied a narrow recess at the end of the inner room, a glass that reached from floor to ceiling, and in a florid carved frame from which the gilding had mostly worn away. Her glance lingered on this Venetian glass, which to my uneducated eye looked the oldest piece of furniture in the room. The surface was so clouded and tarnished that although Loda and I were standing opposite it at a little distance, I could see no reflection of ourselves or of the room. "'You cannot find that curious old glass very flattering to your vanity,' I said, trying to be sprightly and careless in my remarks, while my eyes were watching that wasted countenance with its hectic bloom and those two brilliant
1: eyes. "'No, it doesn't flatter, but I like it.'
0: she said, going a little nearer the glass and then suddenly drawing a dark velvet curtain across the narrow space between the two projecting bookcases. I had not noticed the curtain till she touched it, for this end of the long room was in shadow. The heavy shutters which I had seen outside were closed over two of the windows, but the shutters had been pushed back from the third window, and the casements were open to the still soft air. There was a sofa opposite the curtained recess. Loda sank down upon it, folded her arms, and looked at me with a defiant smile.
1: "'Well, what do you think of my den?' she asked.
0: "'I think you could not have chosen a worse.'
1: "'And yet my grandfather liked these rooms better than all the rest of the house. He almost lived in them, his old servant told me so.'
0: "'An elderly fancy which no doubt injured his health.'
1: "'People choose to say so, because he died sooner than they expected. His death would have come at the appointed time. The day and hour were written in the Book of Fate before he came here. The house had nothing to do with it.' Only in this quiet old room he had time to think of what was coming.
0: He was old and had lived his life. You are long and life is all before you. All? She echoed with a laugh that chilled my heart. I tried to be cheerful, matter-of-fact, practical. I urged her to abandon this dismal library with its dry old books, airless gloom and northern aspect. I told her she had been guilty of an unworthy deceit in spending long hours in rooms that had been especially forbidden her. She made an end of my pleading with cruel abruptness.
1: You are talking nonsense, Helen. You know that I am doomed to die before the summer is over, and I know that you know it.
0: You were well when you came here. You have been growing worse day by day.
1: My good health was only seeming. The seeds of disease were here, touching her contracted chest. They have only developed. Don't talk to me, Helen. I shall spend my quiet hours in these rooms till the end, like my poor old grandfather. There need be no more concealment or double-dealing. "'This house is mine, and I shall occupy the rooms I like.'
0: She drew herself up haughtily as she rose from the sofa, but the poor little attempt at dignity was spoilt by a paroxysm of coughing that made her glad to rest in my arms, while I laid her gently down upon the sofa. The darkness came upon us while she lay there, prostrate, exhausted, and that afternoon in the shadow of the steep hill was the first of many such afternoons. From that day she allowed me to share her solitude, so long as I did not disturb her reveries, her long silences, or brief snatches of slumber. I sat by the open window and worked or read, while she lay on the sofa or moved softly about the room, looking at the books on the shelves, or often stopping before that dark Venetian glass to contemplate her own shadowy image. I wondered exceedingly in those days what pleasure or interest she could find in surveying that blurred shadow of her faded beauty. Was it in bitterness she looked at the altered form, the shrunken features, or only in the philosophical wonder, such as Marlborough felt, when he pointed to the withered old form in the glass, the poor remains of peerless manhood, and exclaimed, That was once a man. I had no power to withdraw her from that gloomy solitude. I was thankful for the privilege of being with her, able to comfort her in moments of physical misery. Captain Holbrook left within a few days of my discovery, his leave having so nearly expired that he had only just time enough to get back to Portsmouth, where his regiment was stationed. He went regretfully, full of fear, and his last anxious words were spoken to me at the little station on the seashore.
1: Do all you can to bring her home as soon as the doctor will let her come. I leave her with a heavy heart, but I can do no good by remaining. I shall count every hour between our and April. She has promised to stay at Southsea till we are married, so that we may be near each other. I am to find a pretty villa for her and her aunt. It will be something for me to do.
0: My heart ached for him in his forlornness, glad of any little duty that made a link between him and his sweetheart. I knew that he dearly loved his profession, and I knew also that he had offered to leave the army, if Loda liked, to alter the whole plan of his life rather than be parted from her, even for a few weeks. She had forbidden such a sacrifice, and she had stubbornly refused to advance the date of her marriage and marry him at San Remo, as he had entreated her to do, so that he might take her back to England and establish her at Ventnor, where he believed she would be better than in her Italian paradise. He was gone, and I felt miserably helpless and lonely without him. Lonely even in Loda's company, for between her and me there were shadows and mysteries that filled my heart with dread. Sitting in the same room with her, admitted now to constant companionship, I felt not the less that there were secrets in her life which I knew not. Her eloquent face told some sad story which I could not read and sometimes it seemed to me that between her and me there was a third presence, and that the name of the third was death. She let me share her quiet afternoons in the old rooms, but though her occupation of these rooms was no longer concealed from the household, she kept the privilege of solitude with jealous care. Her aunt still believed in the siesta between lunch and dinner, and went for her solitary drives with a placid submission to Loda's desire that the carriage and horses should be used by somebody. The poor thing was quite as unhappy as I, and quite as fond as Loda. But her feeble spirit had no power to struggle against her niece's strong will. Of these two, the younger had always ruled the elder. After Captain Hallbrook's departure, the doctor took his patient seriously in hand, and soon I perceived a marked change in his manner of questioning her, while the stethoscope came, now, into frequent use. The casual weekly visits became daily visits, And in answer to my anxious questions, I was told that the case had suddenly assumed a serious character.
1: We have something to fight against now, said the doctor. Until now, we have had nothing but nerves and fancies. And now? The lungs are affected.
0: This was the beginning of a new sadness. Instead of vague fears, we had now the certainty of evil. And I think in the dreary days and weeks that followed, the poor old aunt and I had not one thought or desire or fear which was not centered in the fair young creature whose fading life we watched. Two English nurses, summoned from Cannes, aided in the actual nursing, for which trained skill was needed. But in all the little services which love can perform, Miss Elderson and I were Loda's faithful slaves. I told the doctor of her afternoon spent in her grandfather's library, and I told him also that I doubted my power, or his, to induce her to abandon that room. She has a fancy for it, and you know how difficult fancies are to fight with when anyone is out of health.
1: It is a curious fact, said the doctor, that in every bad case I have attended in this house, my patient has had an obstinate preference for that dull, cold room.
0: When you say every bad case, I think you must mean every fatal case, I said.
2: Yes, unhappily, the three or four cases I am thinking of ended fatally, but that fact need not make you unhappy. Feeble elderly people come to the southern shore to spin out the frail thread of life it is at breaking point when they leave England. In your young friend's case, sunshine and balmy air may do much. She ought to live on the sunny side of the house, but her fancy for her grandfather's library may be indulged all the same. She can spend her evenings in that room, which can be made thoroughly warm and comfortable before she enters it. The room is well built and dry. When the shutters are shut and the curtains drawn and the temperature carefully regulated, it will be as good a room as any other for the lamplight hours. But for the day, let her have all the sunshine she can.
0: I repeated this little lecture to Loda, who promised to obey.
1: I like the queer old room, she said, and Helen, don't think me a bear if I say that I should like to be alone there sometimes, as I used to be before you hunted me down. Society's very nice for people who are well enough to enjoy it, but I'm not up to society not even yours and auntie's. Yes, I know what you are going to say. You sit like a mouse and don't speak to you are spoken to, but the very knowledge that you are there, watching me and thinking about me, worries me. And as for the auntie, with her little anxious fidgetings, wanting to settle my footstool and shake up my pillows and turn the leaves of my books and always making me uncomfortable in the kindest way, dear soul. Well, I don't mind confessing that she gets on my nerves and makes me feel as if I should like to scream. Let me have one hour or two of perfect solitude sometimes, Helen. The nurse doesn't count. She can sit in the room and you will know that I am not going to die suddenly, without anybody to look on at my poor little tragedy.
0: She had talked longer and more earnestly than usual, and the talking ended in a fit of coughing which shook the wasted frame. Mm. I promised that all should be as she wished. If solitude were more restful than even our quiet companionship, she should be sometimes alone. I would answer for her aunt as for myself. The nurses were two bright, capable young women, and were used to the caprices of the sick. I told them exactly what was wanted, a silent, unobtrusive presence, a watchful care of the patient's physical comfort by day and night, and henceforth Loda's evenings were spent for the most part in solitude. She had her books and her drawing board, on which with light weak hand she would sketch faint remembrances of the spots that had charmed us most in our drives or rambles. She had her basket overflowing with scraps of fancy work, beginnings of things that were to have no end.
1: Oh, she doesn't read very long a work for more than ten minutes at a time she just dozes away most of the evening walks about the room now and then and stands to look at herself in the gloomy old glass it's strange that she should be so fond of looking in the glass poor dear she can scarcely fail to see this change in herself
0: no no she must see and it is breaking her heart "'I wish she would do away with every looking-glass in the house,' said I, "'remembering how pretty she had been in the fresh bloom of her happy girlhood "'only six months before that dreary time.'
1: "'She's very fond of going over her grandfather's papers,' the nurse told me. "'There's a book I see her I reading very often. A manuscript book.'
0: "'His diary, perhaps?' said I.
1: "'It might be that, but it's strange that she should care to pour over an no old gentleman's diary.'
0: "'Strange, yes. "'But all her fancies and likings were strange ever since I had entered that unlucky house.' In her thought of her lover, she was not as other girls. She was angry when I suggested that we should tell him of her illness, in order that he might get leave to come to her, if it were only for a few days.
1: No, no, let him never look upon my face again, she said. It is bad enough for him to remember me as I was when we parted at the station. It is ever so much worse now, and it will be, oh Helen. To think of what must come at last.
0: She hid her face in her hands, and the frail frame was convulsed with the vehemence of her sobbing. It was long before I could soothe her, and this violent grief seemed the more terrible because of the forced cheerfulness of her usual manner. Chapter 5 Seek Not to Know. We kept early hours at the villa. We dined at seven, and at eight Loda withdrew to the room which she was pleased to call her den. At ten there was a procession of invalid, nurse, aunt, and friend to Loda's bedroom, where the night nurse in her neat print gown and pretty white cap was waiting to receive her. There were many kisses and tender good nights, and a great show of cheerfulness on all sides. And then Miss Elderson and I crept slowly to our rooms, exchanging a few sad words, a few sympathetic sighs to cry ourselves to sleep, and to awake in the morning with the thought of the doom hanging over us. I used to drop in upon Loda's solitude a little before bedtime, sometimes with her aunt, sometimes alone. She would look up from her book with a surprised air, or start out of her sleep.
1: Bedtime already.
0: Sometimes, when I found her sleeping, I would seat myself beside her sofa and wait in silence for her waking. How picturesque, how luxurious, the old room looked in the glaring light of the wood, which brightened even the grim tapestry, and glorified the bowls of red and purple anemones and other scentless flowers, and the long wall of books, and the velvet-curtained windows, and shining brown floor. It was a room that I too could have loved, were it not for the shadow of fear that hung over all things at the orange grove. I went to the library earlier than usual one evening. The clock had not long struck nine when I left the drawing room. I had seen a change for the worse in Loda at dinner, though she kept, though she had kept up her pretense of gaiety, and had refused to be treated as an invalid, insisting upon dining as we dined, scarcely touching some things, eating ravenously of other dishes, the least wholesome, laughing to scorn all her doctor's advice about dietary. I endured the interval between eight and nine, stifling my anxieties, and indulging the mild old lady with a game of bezique, which my wretched play allowed her to win easily. Like most old people, her sorrow was of a mild and modified quality, and she had, I believe, resigned herself to the inevitable. The careful doctor, the admirable nurses, had set her mind at ease about dear Loda, she told me. She felt that all was being done that love and care could do, and for the rest, well, she had her church services, her prayers, her morning and evening readings in the well-worn New Testament. I believe she was almost happy.
1: We must all die, my dear Helen,
0: she said plaintively. Die, yes. Die when one had reached that humdrum stage on the road of life where this poor old thing was plodding, past barren fields and flowerless hedges, the stage of grey hairs and toothless gums and failing sight and dull hearing, and an old-fashioned, one-idead intellect. But to die like Loda, in the pride of youth, with beauty and wealth and love all one's own? To lay all this down in the grave? That seemed hard too hard for my understanding or my patience. I found her asleep on the sofa by the hearth, the nurse sitting quietly on guard in her armchair, knitting the stocking which was never out of her hands unless they were occupied in the patient's service. Tonight's sleep was sounder than usual, for the sleeper did not stir at my approach, and I seated myself in the low chair by the foot of the sofa without waking her. A book had slipped from her hand and lay on the silken coverlet open. The pages caught my eye, for they were in manuscript, and I remembered what the nurse had said about Lotus's Fancy for this volume. I stole my hand across the coverlet and possessed myself of the book, so softly that the sleeper's sensitive frame had no consciousness of my touch. A manuscript volume of about two hundred pages in a neat firm hand, very small, yet easy to read. So perfectly were the letters formed and so evenly were the lines spaced. I turned the leaves eagerly. A diary, a businessman's diary, recording in commonplace phraseology the transactions of each day. Stock exchange, stock exchange, railways, mines, loans, banks, money, 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 made or lost. That was all the neat penmanship told me as I turned leaf after leaf and ran my eye over page after page. The social life of the writer was indicated in a few brief sentences.
1: Dined with the Parkers. Dinner execrable. Company stupid. Talked to London, who has made half a million in Mexican copper. A dull man. Came to Brighton for Easter. Clear turtle at the Shipyard. They've given me mail rooms. A Smith, so is Smith, not Turkish Smith. To dinner.
0: What interest could Loda possibly find in such a journal? A prosy, commonplace record of losses and gains, bristling with figures. This was what I asked myself as I turned leaf after leaf and saw only the everlasting repetition of financial notes, strange names of loans and mines and railways, with contractions that reduced them to a cipher. Slowly, my hand softly turning the pages of the thick volume, I had gone through about three-fourths of the book when I came to the heading Orange Grove, and the brief entries of the financier gave place to the detailed ideas and experiences of the man of leisure an exile from familiar scenes and old faces, driven back upon self-commune for the amusement of his lonely hours. This doubtless was where Loda's interest in the book began, and here I too began to read every word of the diary with closest attention. I did not stop to think whether I was justified in reading the pages which the dead man had penned in his retirement, whether a license which his granddaughter allowed herself might be taken by me, My one thought was to discover the reason of Loda's interest in the book, and whether its influence upon her mind and spirits was as harmful as I feared. I slipped from the chair to the rug beside the sofa, and sitting there on the ground, with the full light of the shaded reading lamp upon the book, I forgot everything but the pages before me. The first few pages after the old man's installation in his villa were full of cheerfulness. He wrote of this land of the south, new to his narrow experience, as an earthly paradise. He was almost as sentimental in his enthusiasms as a girl, as if it had not been for the old-fashioned style in which his raptures expressed themselves, these pages might have been written by a youthful pen. He was particularly interested in the old monkish rooms at the back of the villa, but he fully recognized the danger of occupying them.
1: I've put my books in the long room, which was used as a refectory. He wrote. But as I now already look at them, there is no fear of my being tempted to spend more than an occasional hour in the room.
0: Then, after an interval of nearly a month,
1: I have arranged my books, as I find the library the most interesting room in the house. My doctor objects to the gloomy aspect, but I find a pleasing melancholy in the shadow of the steep hollow-plad hill. I begin to think that this life of retirement, with no companions but my books, suits me better than the pursuit of money-making, which has occupied so large a portion of my later years.
0: Then followed pages of criticism upon the books he read, History Travels Poetry, books which he had been collecting for many years, but which he was now only beginning to enjoy.
1: I see before me a studious old age. And I hope I may live as long as the head of my old college, Martin Ralph. I have made more than enough money to satisfy myself and to provide ample wealth for the dear girl who will inherit the greater part of my fortune. I can afford to hold my hands and enjoy the long, quiet years of old age in the companionship of the master spirits who have gone before. How near, how living they seem as I steep myself in their thoughts, dream their dreams, see life as they saw it, Virgil, Dante, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, and all those later lights that have shone upon the dullest lives and made them beautiful, how they live with us and fill our thoughts, and make up the brightest part of our daily existence.
0: I read many pages of comment and reverie in the neat, clear penmanship of a man who wrote for his own pleasure and the restful solitude of his own fireside. Suddenly there came a change, the shadow of the cloud that hung over that house.
1: I am living too much alone. I did not think I was of the stuff which is subject to delusions and marbled fancies, but I was wrong. I suppose no man's mind can retain its strength of fibre without the friction of intercourse with other minds of its own calibre. I have been living alone with the minds of the dead and waited upon by foreign servants, with whom I hardly exchange half a dozen sentences in a day, and the result is, what no doubt any brain doctor would have told, I have begun to see ghosts. Yet the thing was strange, for I had been troubled by no apprehensions of illness or premature old age. I had never even thought of myself as an old man. The thing I have seen is so evidently an emanation of my own mind, so palpably a materialization of my own self-conscious, brooding upon myself and my chances of long life, that it is a weakness even to record the appearance that has haunted me during the last few evenings. No shadow of dying monk has stolen between me and the lamplight, no presence from the vanished years revisiting places. The thing which I have seen is myself. Not myself as I am, but myself as I am to be in the coming years, many of few, the vision purely self-induced as I know it to be, has not the less given a shock to the placid contentment of my mind and the long hopes which, in spite of the Venusian's warning, I had of late been cherishing, looking up from my book in yesterday's twilight, my casual glance rested on the old Venetian mirror in front of my desk, and gradually, after the blurred darkness, I saw a face looking at me my own face as it might be after the wasting of disease or the slow decay of advancing years, a face at least ten years older than the face I had seen in my glass a few hours before, hollow cheeks, haggard eyes, the loose underlip drooping weakly, a bent figure in an invalid chair, an aspect of utter helplessness, and it was myself of that fact i had no shadow of doubt, hypochondria of course, a common form of malady, perhaps this shaping of the imagination into divisions, yet the thing was strange, for i had been troubled by no apprehensions of illness or premature old age, i had never even thought of myself as an old man, in this pride-bred of a long immunity from illness, I had considered myself exempt from the ailments that are want to attend declining years. I had pictured myself living to the extremity of human life and dropping peacefully into the centenarian's grave. I was angry with myself for being affected by the vision, and I locked the door of the library when I went to dress for dinner, determined not to re-enter the room. I had done something, by outdoor exercise and change of scene, to restore the balance of my brain. Yet when I had dined, there came upon me so feverish a desire to know whether the glass would again show me the same figure and face that I gave the key to my major domo, and told him to light the lamps and make up the fire in the library. Yes, the thing lived in the blushed and blurred old glass. The dusky surface, which was too dull to reflect the realities of life, gave back that vision of age and decay with an unalterable fidelity. The face and figure came and went, and the glass was often black, But whenever the thing appeared, it was the same, the same in every dismal particular, in all the signs of senility and fading life. This is what I am to be twenty years hence. A man of eighty might look like that. Yet I had hoped to escape the bitter lot of gradual decay, which I had seen and pitied in other men. I had promised myself that the reward of a temperate life, a life free from all consuming fires of dissipation, or tempestuous passions, be a vigorous and prolonged old age. So surely as I had toiled to amass fortune, so surely also had I striven to lay up for myself long years of health and activity, a life prolonged to the utmost span.
0: There was a break of ten days in the journal, and when the record was resumed, the change in the writing shocked me. The neat, firm penmanship gave place to weak and straggling characters which, but for marked peculiarities in the formation of certain letters, I should have taken for the writing of a stranger.
1: The thing is always there in the black depths of that damnable glass, and I spend the greater part of my life watching for it. I've struggled in vain against the bitter curiosity to know the worst which the vision of the future can show me. Three days ago I flung the key of this detestable room into the deepest well on the premises, but an hour afterwards I sent a tagier for a blacksmith and had the lock picked and ordered a new key and a duplicate, lest in some future fit of spleen I could throw away a second key and suffer agnes before the door could be opened. "'Twinica Sirius, Vainly, the poet's warning buzzes and booms in my vexed ear, repeating itself perpetually like the beating of a pulse in my brain, or like the ticking of a clock that will not let a man sleep. "'Screere nefus, nefus, The desire to know more is no stranger than reason. Well, I am at least prepared for what is to come. I live no longer in a false paradise. The thing which I see daily and hourly is no hallucination, no materialisation of my self-consciousness, as I thought in the beginning. It is a warning and a prophecy.' So shalt thou be, soon, soon, shalt thou resemble this form which it shocks thee now to look upon. Since first the shadow of myself looked at me from the darkest shadows of the glass, I felt every indication of approaching doom. The doctor tries to lap away my fears, but he owns that I am below par, meaningless phrase, talks of nervine decay and suggests my going to St. Peritz. He doubts if this place suits me and confesses that I have changed for the worse since I came here.
0: Again an interval, and then in writing that was only just legible.
1: It is a month since I wrote in this book, a month which has realised all that the Venetian glass showed me when first I began to read its secret. I am a helpless old man, carried about in an invalid chair. Gone my pleasantest prospect of following tranquil years. Gone my selfish scheme of enjoyment, the fruition of a life, of money-getting. The old Eastern fable has been realised once again. My gold has turned to withered leaves, so far as any pleasure that it can buy for me. I hope that my granddaughter may get some good out of the wealth that I have toiled to win.
0: Again a break. Longer this time, and again the handwriting showed signs of increasing weakness. I had to pore over it closely in order to decipher the broken, crooked lines penciled casually over the pages.
1: The weather is insufferably hot, but too ill to be moved. In library, coolest room, doctor no objection. I've seen the last picture in the glass. Death, corruption, cavern of Lazarus and no redeemer's hand to raise the dead. Horrible, horrible, myself as I must be. Soon, soon, how soon...
0: And then, scrawled in a corner of the page, I found the date, June 24, 1889. I knew that Mr. Hammond died in the July of that year. Seated on the floor, with my head bent over the pages and reading more by the light of the blazing logs than by the lamp on the table above me, I was unaware that Loda had awoke and had raised herself from her reclining position on the sofa. I was still absorbed in my study of those last horrible lines, when a pale hand came suddenly down upon the open book, and a laugh which was almost a shriek ran through the silent spaces around us. The nurse started up and ran to her patient, who was struggling to her feet and staring wildly into the long narrow glass in the recess opposite her sofa.
1: Look, look, she shrieked. It has come, the vision of death, the dreadful face, the shroud, the coffin. Look, Helen, look.
0: My gaze followed the direction of those wild eyes, and I know not whether my excited brain conjured up that image that appalled me. This alone I know, that in the depths of that dark glass, indistinct as a form seen through turbid water, a ghastly face, a shrouded figure, looked out at me, as one dead in the bottom of a tomb. A sudden cry from the nurse called me from the horror of that vision to stern reality, to see the lifeblood ebbing from the lips I had kissed so often with all a sister's love. My poor friend never spoke again. A severe attack of hemorrhage hastened the inevitable end, and before her heartbroken lover could come to clasp the hand and gaze into her fading eyes, Violetta Hammond passed away. The end. Or is it? (laughs)
1: I would just like to apologize to anyone who does speak Latin, because I do not.
0: Uh, I thought it sounded pretty close. I studied Greek and they're they're similar, I guess, but yeah.
1: I feel like it's one of those languages where you pronounce every letter, so I just thought I'd go with that. Because I know Italians like that. (sighs) So,
0: that is quite the short story.
1: It is, and I'm reluctant to bring it all back to Elliot, because I am an Elliot scholar, but I mentioned to you at the beginning that Stonyshire, which is where Colonel Holbrook is based, is actually George Elliot's name for Derbyshire, and Adam Bede. And also, I don't know if you've read The Lifted Veil, vale, but this really reminded me of The Lifted Veil. Vale. Um, is that... It's a short story by Elliot, okay. and it's this guy who... It's called Latimer. But he can see into the future, and he knows the exact date of his own death. Mm. And he's kind of haunted by that knowledge. Interesting. So I don't know if to some extent... And obviously we know she liked Elliot. Brannon's doing her lovely woman in white thing, where she's like, Oh, I really admire you. I'm going to slightly riff on your ideas.
0: Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I know like this really... Uh, certain aspects of the story really kind of harken back to the gothic novels of the romantic period and, and just prior, like, the, um, the manuscript that tells the whole ghastly tale and, um the foreign setting and
1: yeah i think that's partly what made me think of um the of veil vale, because it's i can't remember where they are but the first time Latimer goes to the city and he's really freaked out because he's like i know this city inside out because i've had this foreshadowing of what this is going to be
0: mm-hmm. that's a good point so um not only is she riffing on elliot probably because she riffed on many people as you mentioned but she's this is definitely an exercise in in the neo-gothic revival i guess of the of the end of the century so the gothic had suddenly become popular again thanks to people like Le fanu over in ireland and
1: also i just have to look this up but it's a uh, it's kind of tangential but the mirror didn't make me think of dorian gray as well with the aging in the mirror which i've i've just looked up and was released in 1890 so just before Ooh, yeah there's a tendency when someone says i can see influence to go oh, but she's not She's not plagiarizing, I'm not saying that at all. I think it's really interesting to track these influences, see who's getting from what, because I think a lot of the time you see the really famous writers actually being influenced by the less famous, if you start looking into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I heard somebody once said in a lecture, and I like, unfortunately can't remember who or what, uh, otherwise I would love to give credit, but um, that everything is fan fiction. If you think about it long enough, you know if you track the influences back far enough, basically we're all just riffing our writers are all just riffing off uh things they're inspired by from from one another.
1: Yes, i heard that theory in like like I heard that in first year undergrad, and now I just cannot for the life of me remember who it is.
0: It's probably someone major who we should both know <laughs> This is how it always works.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be Bloom or someone where well, we should definitely know it.
0: Yeah, if if you know listeners, write in and please re- remind us of the <laughs> of the context. <laughs> um, I also thought so. The the kind of offhand remarks about the servants as being superstitious was another really quite witty allusion to um, classic Gothic novels like Anne Radcliffe's um, The Mysteries of Udolpho because the servants are always the ones who are really hysterical in the face of ghosts or other terrors and, and spreading that their um, their fear and their superstition.
1: Yeah, that line about servants are great at seeing ghosts really tickled me. Yeah. And I like how it's kind of inverted in this, and how it's the, it's the wealthy people that are seeing all the ghosts and the servants have no idea what they're doing.
0: Yeah, they just live in the house and they're fine and they're not affected at all and they're the rational ones and those lovely...
1: Yeah, it's specified that it's always the owner, which made me think with Helen seeing what she sees right at the end, Lotus is pretty much dying. Do we think that Helen is Lotus' heir? Is the cycle going to continue?
0: Yeah, I, that's kind of what I wonder too, because like she has now looked in the glass and seen something. So it could be like at the end of the horror movie when the, the villain has somehow conquered death and they're back to terrorize. Or the implication is they're back to terrorize a new group of people in the next movie.
1: Yeah, they set themselves up for a sequel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would not be surprised if Braden is setting herself up for sequels, knowing how prodigiously she writes.
0: Yeah. Uh, so kind of in that context, then, I wonder... So this is set in Mediterranean area, but it's um, dealing with the British landed classes, and like they're the ones who are being punished or affected by this cursed mirror so is this do we can we even intuit that this is some sort of class critique by Braddon? or
1: yeah I think that's a really good point there's so many mentions of like you said there's all the mentions of the servants and there's so much about how much she spent on this villa putting electric lights in there because she wants everyone in the town to see. I think that's the bit that really struck me, where I was like, you're going to some town where, I don't know what the economic situation of the town is, but potentially you're going to a town where people are thinking about whether they can afford to light a tallow candle, and going, look at me on the hill with my electric lights.
0: Yeah. And I, I know it's not quite colonialism, but in some ways, like, parts of this really kind of smack of colonialism, if that makes sense at all.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think, especially in the mid-late 19th century, there are parts of Italy that are almost colonised. Florence's English population is... I know a lot of them probably were trying to integrate a bit more. But you've got this whole set of writers in a foreign country, but they're all known as the English... You've got the English cemetery in Florence, because there's so many of them there.
0: Interesting, yeah. And we have all these mentions of like the orange groves and the lemon groves and the servants from the Indies, and it just really makes it seem like a very colonial setting
1: the slave that that felt so anachronistic it's what 1894 did you say
0: yeah that she's writing and the story is set in 89 so it's still quite late in the century
1: it's still well after um what's the word
0: the abolishment of slavery yeah yeah because that was 1833
1: yeah it was it was much earlier
0: and then, um, like, in the colonies, it was a little bit later than that, but not not a lot later. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... Sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I was going to say, if, if we're imagining Lota to be early 20s, then she wouldn't even have been alive once slavery existed. So why is that the word that comes to mind?
0: You know, or is Braden using it figuratively, and then, like, that's a really weird and powerful uh, diction choice if she's using it even figuratively so they
1: are in italy so it's not colonial in that sense but obviously her father's been the consul at peking so there is colonial interest there and then obviously braddon's brother is the prime minister of tasmania isn't he
0: right yeah it it kind of makes me feel like she's participating in this late century critique of colonialism like the people who are most implicated in it the people who owned land land in these places and who are benefiting from um that investment or that ownership are being prematurely aged and punished. So that's kind of interesting. It's
1: like some kind of nineteenth century version of white guilt. Interesting.
0: <laughs> so also like so this is in eighteen ninety four, which means the new woman is huge in England, like the woman question. So these kind of feminist types who Um, participate in masculine roles and uh, were notorious for, like, smoking and dressing in pants and riding bicycles all around instead of uh, being conveyed to places by other people. And um, also things like um, free love or sex outside of marriage or even um, relationships with other women that were more open than they had been in the past so um, Loda is very much being positioned as a sort of new woman figure in many ways I think
1: yeah I would agree Um, like with the whole bicycle riding thing I just was coming back to something again that I heard in a lecture which is that the problem with bicycles is that it's unseemly for a woman to have something that powerful between her legs Uh a tiny bit of insight that I heard an lecture, undergraduate and I was like I have to credit I think it's Jonathan Brockbank said that in a lecture and it stuck with me.
0: That's that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Um there is a another late century novel. It's called um oh what is it called? The typewriter girl by uh, it's by Grant Allen, I think, but um he's writing under a pseudonym, a, a female pseudonym, so it's Olive something and I can't remember the last name, but In it, the protagonist goes about on bicycle, and she is a new woman. She's also a communist and all these other progressive things. And she says, basically, if a woman has a bicycle, no man can tell her what to do. So it's kind of really, I mean, Loda has a very similar attitude here. She's she's got an inheritance. She has her own house. She decides, like, it's my money. I'm going to do what I want. And in fact, states that pretty obviously multiple times. And she's not worried about conventionality or um, propriety very much at all. So part of me wonders if she's punished for this, if that's why she dies.
1: Yeah, this is the thing that I keep coming up against. and it's You have in a novel some woman who goes against expectations and it's great. And then she either dies or she gets married and she just gets tamed. And it's almost like the writer really wants to write these women. But then she has to appease the mainstream audience by going, Oh, it's okay because she's going to die. So I'm not really saying it's okay. Right. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. The return to convention. Yeah. Um, So even, like, this is foreshadowed in the first chapter when the lawyer says, Then, madame, I have done. A willful woman must have her way, even when it is
1: a foolish way. At the start, Lotus says to Helen, They show you Ruffini's house at Tashia, his actual house where he actually lived. That interested me, and I was like, who is this guy? Who is an Italian poet who was at some point, this is my Wikipedia reading, exiled and sentenced to death for betraying the country or something, an enemy of the country. Interesting, and another reference to being a bit, I had the word in my head and then it went out. Spent most of the last five years of his life in asylums. Yeah, Wikipedia, that great resource that you should always use in your essays, says he was condemned to death as an enemy of the state and living in exile in Paris. I can't find out why he was condemned to death.
0: Interesting. Maybe that's something we can add in show notes. Is that the fascinating subtext it sounds like? Oh, can you shed any light on this uh, running joke about Brighton?
1: I am not sure what the joke is about Brighton. It's a perfectly nice seaside town, and I'm not sure why. I, maybe there was something in the 19th century where it was seen as a joke,
2: but...
0: It's just so weird, like, that everyone's always teasing our narrator, Helen, for liking it so much. Maybe Braddon has an inside joke about it or something.
1: Yeah, I think possibly what's going on is that, like I said, it's perfectly nice seaside town, and maybe they're saying Helen's a bit unadventurous in that she's just like, let's go to this place that we know is nice rather than risking it on the Italian villa. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the sense I was getting, but I was just not sure if there was something.
1: Yeah, I don't think Brighton is. So it's on the south coast. Which is kind of the South Coast is where you would go if you are a British Victorian who needed sea air. So maybe, it, yeah, maybe it is just that.
0: Well, I guess was it like was it um, conventional to do like to vacation to go on holiday to Brighton? Was that kind of a a commonplace move?
1: Yeah, it might be because it's not that far from London. It's by this point you would have been able to get a train from London, so maybe that makes it a bit more conventional.
0: It's really convenient to get there and. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it could be that. Yeah, like you say, we can have a dig into it and put it in the show notes.
0: Yes. We're so prepared this time.
1: So professional.
0: It's, um, for uh for those of you who are not in academia, this is midterm for me, or almost. We're, we're in week three here in Oregon. Um, so things are getting fairly hectic and grading piles or stacking up and preparing had extra there were f- extra obstacles in the way to, yes. to find the time to do this research but
1: yes I am trying to race to finish a chapter so <laughs> I sympathize with you <laughs>
0: uh, we we did it it's recorded yay exactly and it's a lovely story so do you have any um, last thoughts I think we should maybe start wrapping up now
1: Yes, I think that would be a good idea. (laughs) I think it's a shame that her short stories aren't more well-known, because it's obviously it's a really accessible way to get to know about new writers.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: it is a really charming short story. Lovely.
0: Yeah, she's also got, um, in this same collection, which is The Face in the Glass, which was uh, put out by the British Library, um, I think headed up by Janine Hatter, I need to double check that. But she has a a vampire novella called Good Lady Duquesne, which was written two years after the story we read today. So in 1896. So that came out the year before Dracula. And if you're interested in Dracula or vampire novels in general, that would be a great place to start reading Braden's work if you're interested in learning more and reading more.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I would love to do at some point, talk about the history of vampires pictured in like Carmilla and things coming first but
0: yeah it's really fascinating I'm teaching Dracula right now and my students are getting really into it so so it's been fun to think about kind of the broader context of vampires in the 19th century with them okay so I think that's all we have for you today listeners have a fun and safe Halloween weekend and we'll be back soon with more content
1: have a spooky weekend.
0: Yes. Thanks for listening. Thanks.
2: After the ball, done by Mr. John J. A little maiden climbed an old man's feet. Thanks for
0: listeners, it's future Courtney popping back in to make a few exciting announcements about things that have happened since we recorded. So first, and most exciting, I think, is that Eleanor has agreed to come on as a full-time co-host starting next season. So three cheers for more Eleanor! Yay! Eleanor has brought so much to the show, and I am looking forward to working with her more as we continue to explore lesser-known Victorian writers and their work. Second, and also very exciting, is that we have launched our official website. It is www.victorianscribblers.com. and there you can learn more about the podcast. There are links to our Patreon and social media pages. We, of course, will be posting podcast episodes there, and you can subscribe to our podcast through that website. And also something I'm really excited about is our corrections page, where we will list revisions to flubs or inaccuracies as they come up in the podcast instead of retroactively going back and fixing those in the audio files, which would be a momentous task. So please keep an eye out there, or we'll point you to it as need be if we have important revisions to make to anything that we've said in the podcast. And please just check out the website too. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Music for this podcast, courtesy of Muse Open, www.museopen.org.